back to the Flat Out RC Podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking RC planes, helis, and drones. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you all the way from the land down under Melbourne, Australia. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you probably can tell my voice sounds a bit funny, a bit nasally. I've had a cold. It's not COVID. Got the COVID test. The wife yelled at me and said, you must go and get a COVID test. And I said to her, can't someone just have a normal cold nowadays? It always have to be COVID. Anyway, it's not COVID. It's just a normal cold. But things are looking up. Got over the hump of the uh, the bad days. So everything's looking good. And a great episode. Really good episode this week. Uh, special guest, Chad Budrow, the Executive Director of the AMA. That's the uh, Academy of Model Aeronautics over in the U.S., uh, so stay tuned. Big name, awesome guy. Really had a great time talking to Chad uh, and was very, uh, very giving in his uh, chat with me. So please stay tuned. But uh, we've got news this week. So let's go to the news. It's been a while, but we actually have a new product to talk about this week on the Flat Out RC podcast and that is there is a new dji drone out now we all know dji as the uh, manufacturer of uh, some pretty good uh, drone photography videography sort of platform kind of things uh, they really paved the way for drones when you think about it they've done an amazing job really and you, you start to wonder where are they going to go to next because they've got their, their their drones to a pretty decent position even you know, go back and fly a drone that's three four years old and they're still pretty damn good but they've now moved their sites into a sort of a different category in drones and that is fpv first person view you know what that what i'm talking about put the goggles on your head pretend you're sitting on a drone and fly it around well the dji fpv drone has now been released uh came on the second of march or something like that very early on in the month and is there's two schools of thought there's one school of thought that says nah it's not a hardcore drone like a hardcore racing drone it's not very robust and there's another school of thought that is like well this isn't too bad now over the past few days i've been really thinking about the, the dji drone watching a number of youtube videos on it to see what people are saying about it and so let me just give you a bit of an overview it's a quadcopter style of uh, drone pretty small i think it weighs, weighs around 795 grams or something uh, so it's got the quad rotors. Uh, it has the construction looks like it's pretty plasticky. I think it looks pretty plasticky. It's got one camera, forward-facing camera uh, that is not only doubles as the FPV camera, but also a camera for recording, uh, and that will shoot 4K footage up to 4K 60, 60 frames a second, which is pretty damn good, really, uh, for what it is. It the combo comes with the drone and the DJI FPV goggles V2. Now, what these are is goggles you put on your on your head, of course, and it brings back sort of high definition footage from the camera on the drone, so that you can fly it around. People have been raving about this DJI system. Uh, they're saying that the clarity of the picture is just amazing and, and changes the experience uh, yet again. Uh, you know, the, the, the diehards have said that the latency of the image is sort of not the same as a typical analog system because the DJI system is digital. Uh, and so drone races, you know, an aggressive freestyle is still using the, you know, the Fat Shark style goggles. But more and more people are moving to the DJI for fun because the quality of the image is just so much better. 
So you get the uh, the goggles with it. It comes with a little controller, which looks like a, a an Xbox kind of controller style, that new sort of compact size. You've got this other thing called a motion controller, which is another way to control it, but through hand movements and things like that, which I don't know. Not, doesn't really float my boat that much. Um, scrolling through the website here, lots of great imagery. So as I said, 4K... Um, uh, footage coming that you can record high definition footage back to uh, transmission back to the goggles so you get a really good view but I think how do I position this drone and I, I think I've come to the conclusion of where where it is positioned it's pretty fast um, it's got an integrated battery batteries aren't cheap but there's an integrated battery that will give you they're saying up to 20 minutes flight time now, of course, I've seen some videos where they only got five minutes because they flew it flat out. You know, what people have a tendency to do with FPV, if they're not good at FPV, is they fly high and they just pin the throttle at full throttle and fly around because it doesn't look as fast. It only looks faster when you're sort of down under under the tree sort of height. But, uh, yeah, five minutes if you're going flat knack. And, of course, if, if there's wind, that'll impact the flight time as well. But, uh, but. 20 minutes, I've heard of some people getting 19, 20 minutes flights. That's just phenomenal out of a, a drone because a typical racing drone get maybe two and a half minutes if you're, if you're going hard, um, two to two and a half minutes. So you've got extended um, extended time there. Uh, big field of view, 150 degree, super wide angle view out of the, um, the goggles. You can actually record 120 frames per second for slow motion, but that won't be in 4K. But if you want to, I don't know why you want to shoot slow motion um in a racing drone uh it sounds like a racing drone goes pretty fast the range is phenomenal i think it's four kilometers range something like that the controller has is basically designed for the drone to to make the most of some of the features um and i think the interesting thing is a couple little things that you can do with this i think first of all dji offer a number of different flight modes so you can have uh a, a normal flight mode so that the drone actually flies like a typical DJI drone, a GPS control, the altitude hold, all that kind of stuff. So you can still FPV, but if you're not great at it, then you can just put it in the normal mode and that'll limit your bank angles and things like that. But, you know, if you let go of the sticks, it will go straight to a hover, which that I think what that's what makes it easy to fly is that if you let go of everything, it just stabilizes itself. Uh, there's another sport mode, which basically is similar to the normal mode where you just get a bit more speed and a bit more angle. And then there's full manual mode, so you can fly it like a full FPV drone. And so you've got three different choices there, which you don't normally get in 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 racing drones. So so if you're a newcomer to it, it you get into it straight away. You'd be FPVing you know, in your first flight, no problems. If you keep in that normal sport mode, uh, but then you always have that option to go to manual mode. The other good feature, because obviously it's got a GPS in it and accelerometers and all that kind of stuff, that it has. Uh, uh, almost like a panic button where as soon as you press it it just the drone will stop in its tracks and just sit there and hover uh which can be good if you think you're going to get in trouble or you know feel like you're losing control um you have that ability the camera on the drone can be tilted it's a it's a one axis gimbal so you can move it up and down so you can never do that with an fpv drone where you can adjust the tilt angle of the camera uh, so if you you know you're flying fast you put a bit more tilt in uh, if you want to fly slow, you can even face the cameras uh, you know, straight down. So when you come into land, you can go into like normal mode and just basically fly it down like a normal DJI drone. So landing it, you know, a spot landing won't be a problem at all. With the FPV drones, I find you've really got to fly it in and 
you know, because the, the camera's pointing up in the air, you don't know where you're exactly going to land. I suppose you get better at it with time, of course, but uh, that that's, I think, a nice little added feature. Um, zero to 100 kilometers per hour in two seconds. So it's not totally slow, but it's not going to be as fast as a racing, pure racing drone. Um, will it do flips and rolls and things like that? Yep, it will do it uh, in full manual mode. Now, just a little word, I suppose one of the things, well, before I get to that point, it has a return to home function as well. So it, it of course, it's going to track your GPS, you're using GPS, it's going to track um, where you are. And if you're panic and don't know where you are, then you can just press return to home and it'll fly back and land itself. So that's pretty good. A uh, nice little added feature, which will probably encourage you to explore a bit further if you're out in the countryside. Uh, what was the other feature that I was going to talk about? Um, yeah, well, the sort of one of the downsides for me is that the gimbals of the controller are positioned uh, in, in the neutral position, the center position. And what that, so if you're flying in normal and sport mode, it's like a normal DJI drone where you just push forwards, backwards, all that kind of stuff. Whereas if you want to fly in a manual mode and you want that full throttle articulation from zero throttle to full throttle, you need to actually open up one side of the gimbal and adjust the uh, the sticks and the tension and all that kind of stuff. So it's a bit, it's, it's not a toolless design, which I would have loved to have seen that you could just flick a button and it would automatically give you full articulation on the throttle. So it's not as if you're going to be able to change it mid-flight, uh, which is a little bit of a disappointment when you think about it because then you only have the choice of flying in sort of a normal slash sport mode or a uh, or a fully manual mode. Um, the fully manual mode looks like it's fun anyway. I think that a lot of people will do that anyway, but you just have to change it before you fly and you can't go back. But um, I think you possibly could fly it in normal mode, but you just got to remember that you've got to center those sticks uh, kind of thing. So... Anyway, uh, it does show like an, uh, uh, the letter H on the uh, screen to show you where the, where, the home, uh, where your home position is if you lost orientation as to where you are whilst you're flying, which is pretty, uh, pretty, pretty handy. Okay, so just to wrap it up. Oh, there are some sensors. That's what I've got to mention. There's a downward-facing sensor and a forward sensor. So if you're in like that return to home mode and stuff like that, it will try to avoid objects. But I think I heard that if it's in the forward motion mode that um, like that – if you're flying it, that it won't avoid the object. It will just slow the motors down to sort of give you a warning that you might be getting a bit too close. Uh, so it's got some sensor technology, downward sensing and forward sensing. Uh, so, okay, so this is my verdict. If you haven't been into FPV racing drones and you know before and you want to get into it, perfect solution. If you're already into FPV drones, you're probably not going to get it because you'll stick with what you've got uh, and it should be fine because it'll probably be more agile and you probably enjoy it, enjoy it more. If you want to look at filming with an FPV drone, so you need something with a bit more speed, I actually think it's a really, really good solution. It's something that I'm considering from the commercial work that I do, whether I get something like this to chase motorbikes and things like that at speed. And the reason why I say that is it's a very simple solution for that. And some of the features like being able to put in the panic mode um, where it just hover, the, the extended battery life uh, is a great, great feature for doing commercial kind of work or filming, filming work basically. Uh, that 
you know that range that you can get out of it can also come in handy you can follow something for a longer period of time now you know if it's a car going down a dirt road or something like that um so there's if you go and buy a normal racing drone and then you want to use it for filming then generally we get a gopro we put the gopro on so you know you have to buy the gopro set up the gopro press record on it where Whereas with the DJI drone, it's one camera that's already built in and it's start-stop on the uh, on the controller. Um, so, you know, you don't have to film the whole entire flight. You can just pick and choose what you want to film. Saves space on the cards, which can also mean less editing time because you're just filming what you want rather than just capturing everything. The, uh, you know, the, the ability to rotate the gimbal so that you can fly it at different speeds comfortably and, and get a good field of view. Uh, being able to land it, you know, with that downward-facing camera, that kind of thing, I think is a, a really great benefit. So when it comes to pricing, you're looking at around the $2,000 mark. I'll just click on the Buy Now button. We'll see what it gives me a price. The DJI FPV combo that gives you the drone, the controller, the headset, you know, the digital headset, um, a few other cables and all the bits and bobs. You're looking at... $2,099 Australian dollars, uh, $2,099. So it's not cheap. And then if you, it only comes with my battery. If you want a couple of extra batteries, you've got to pay the $429, which comes with the intelligent charging hub, which I think apparently will do storage charge. Like a battery alone is $230 just for a battery. So it's not cheap. I don't know, I don't know how many cells that is. I think it's, it's a lipo. Um, yeah, it doesn't say. Uh, but anyway, it's not a cheap thing. Let's let's call it two and a half thousand dollars with the, with the extra batteries. How does that compare? Well, if you have to go and buy the DJI FPV goggles, I think they're about the thousand dollar mark, a bit over thousand dollar mark for the, just the goggles alone. Um, if you have to go and buy a GoPro, you're going to pay like you know five hundred and sixty bucks around that um, for the latest GoPro. So you're already up sixteen hundred bucks. You got to then buy a drone. You might be able to build one for maybe three hundred bucks to four hundred bucks, really. For a reasonable drone, um, so it, uh, then you need a transmitter, add the transmitter on top of that, depending on what you get. So you get a fly sky or something like that. Um, you know, you might spend two hundred bucks on a, on a transmitter. You're getting close. And some batteries. Yeah, if you had the lipos in, in because the the battery run is not very long, you probably buy a few. It's going to be line ball, uh, realistically, to getting sort of a, a, a drone set up for doing some filming, an FPV drone. Um, assuming you didn't have already the transmitter and, and all that kind of stuff. But if you already had that stuff, of course, it's going to be going to be cheaper. Can you use the DJI goggles with other um, drones? Yes, you can. If they have the DJI digital air unit, uh, you can. So you get some extra value out of the uh, out of those goggles. Would I buy one? I'm really, really tempted. Really, really tempted. I think there's some good features there for filming that would um, that that make it quite nice. So if DJI want to give me one, that'd be great. Uh, they have been a good supporter of Flat Out RC. Uh, but anyway, go and have a look at it. DJI FPV Drone. It's guest time. Uh, this week's guest is Chad Budrow, all the way from the US. Uh, Chad is, I call him the head honcho at the AMA. He, he basically is the executive director, so he's in charge of the AMA operations at their head office. Uh, I'm reluctant to call him the boss because, as you'll see, Chad 
there are a lot of stakeholders holders involved in in the AMA, um, you know, with volunteers and flying clubs and members and blah blah. blah. And I think they're probably the bosses, and and, and Chad reports to them. But he, he basically manages the operations and uh, uh, oversees all that. And he's an awesome guy. Look, I really enjoyed my chat with him. He, um, I sent him an email saying, "Do you want to come on?" And he said, "Yes, no problem. We arranged a time and." And and had our had our chat. We had a bit of a time limit because uh, Chad had to go to had another another meeting. He stayed back after work to have a chat with me. Then was going to go straight into a uh, a board meeting or something like that. So uh, here's my chat with Chad Budrow, where we cover lots of different things in relation to what the AMA is up to around the whole drone debate and uh, monitoring what's in the sky. You'll get all the answers from Chad Budrow. Well, it's my pleasure today to have the leader, the man that is really in charge of the AMA, the Academy of Model Aeronautics in the US, Chad Budrow. Thanks for joining me. Al, thank you for having me. Well, let's get into it because we are short on time because you've got a board meeting or something to go to, haven't you? I do. I do. And uh, that that's my role. It, it's working with staff, with members in the board. And tonight... Uh, we get to work with our board directors. Well, that's we're going to get into that more. But before we do, sure, tell me a bit about how you got your start in aero modeling. You know, so I think like a lot of hobbyists, it started when we were kids, and that that's my story too. Uh, my dad flew; he he flew control line, and uh, he had a little cub. Uh, he got into RC for a little bit. Uh, but we were we did not have a club nearby us, so we were not very successful in getting into RC because at the time you needed real estate and you really needed someone to take you under your wing, which just shows the power of an association and why it's important. Um, but we still we flew rockets, control line. We got into other RC boats and cars, and you know, I was big into trains as well. And, and I think like a lot of modelers, at least here in the States, and I suspect globally, uh, life get, I don't want to say life gets in the way, yeah. but you, you get distractions, you get, you know, important things like college and, and family and career. And, and I was fortunate to find a career path that led me back to the hobby. And so I can go out and fly. And as a matter of fact, I charged some lipos today. I didn't get to go out and fly weather here in the States. It, it's starting to improve. We're starting to get into our spring season. Um, but it, I'm, I'm really fortunate to find a hobby in a career where I can marry both, something I enjoy doing and in a career path. And do you find that often people will say that when you mix your hobby with your career, it can really detract from your hobby and you lose that enjoyment. And, I, and, I, and I've dabbled, you know, I've, I sold model airplanes at some point in time and I didn't, I didn't lose that love for the hobby. Do you, have you been affected at all by living and breathing aero modeling every day? No, I think, like I said, I think at least, what I see among our members here at AMA is a lot of people don't get back into the hobby until maybe they're empty nesters or they're near retirement. And that's not true for everyone, of course, but I feel like it afforded me a chance to speed up my timeline to get back into the hobby. And yeah, there are days where, you know, today's a long day, you know, putting in 12, 14 hours and, you know, I'm just at the end of the day, I'll be ready to go home and maybe not play on a flight sim or fly. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it's great. We're fortunate here at AMA to have a thousand acres in our backyard. And uh, I was just talking to our education director. He gets out and flies. Sometimes he'll come in a little earlier. Sometimes it's therapeutic for lunch. 
just you know, I have a lunch break. I'm going to get out and just do a couple quick laps. I'm just going to go out and fly. That is my dream that I could uh, walk out of my office and onto the the field and uh, go and yes. fly. I keep on saying when I when I win the lotto, I'm moving to the country and I'm going to have this hangar. And it's going to be right on the runway. And I'm basically going to live there. And I'm going to open the doors, roll my planes out. And that's it. It's going to be perfect. But they keep on giving me the wrong numbers for the lotto. That's the problem. It's not my fault. And so uh, when um, uh, so you started out flying, and did you find one sort of avenue of the hobby that you like? So, you know, into gliders or aerobatics or you bit into everything? You know, so that's the other great thing about the hobby is it. It's diverse and you can dabble. And, and I've, I've been dabbling lately into free flight, which is something I never thought I would get into. Really? And, uh, and and that's a beautiful thing. Again, I, I know we're, I'm spoiled uh, having a thousand acres at my workplace. Uh, we have national competitions and a lot of events. And just watching free flight, I, I latched onto a couple of the members and they've taken me under their wing about building and buy, finding an old Cox peewee engine and mounting it and learning how to adjust the carburetor and the mixture it's it's um i i i really am just dabbling into that world of model aviation whereas before you know i i evolved um it was i i'm kind of more of a semi-scale i i i enjoy multi-rotors i enjoy others but really i kind of like the traditional looking model aircraft and for a while, I just came off float flying. That was kind of—I yeah. have an icon. I know you can't see, but I love an icon, icon. five behind yeah. me. Yes, and so um, although I do find they don't fly so well off of snow. <laughs> we just had some major <laughs> snow here, and I thought I'm going to put some float flyers off the snow. And not the same. It doesn't work as well as I thought it would. Yeah, no, it's not the same. Well, I've been doing my research, and I know that you're a bit of a car guy as well. Wow, yes. What is this Model T Ford? Have you still got the Model <laughs> T Ford? <laughs> I because, do. You know, um, I've been doing a re- a, a, an amateur research study. That Do you know that most of us in aero modeling also like cars, boats, or fishing, things like that as well? So everybody's got this st- car story. So I, I can't, I have to have a chat with you about this Model T. W- what's going on with that? Well, again, I think it's, it, I'm not surprised to hear you say that because I think a lot of people in the hobby, they, they love being outdoors, they're tinkerers by nature. They love transportation, uh, whether it's surface or air. And so the Model T, I, I, in a previous life, I, I worked in in, uh, in a company that actually had the national headquarters for the Model T Association in the same town. And they would have festivals and events. And it really piqued my interest. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's a hobby that, unlike cars today, which are just full of electronics and you need training and certification, a Model T is very rudimentary, very basic. Uh, it's something anyone can work on as long as you have a wrench and a hammer and a screwdriver. You're you're set. So, I, and there's something nostalgic about it. It's a driving experience unlike any other car. The the there's no gas pedal. Uh, there's no gear shift. It's it's just a a completely different driving experience. Is it true that you actually drive it to work now and again? I do. <laughs> yes, I do. You have done your research. It I. I, I only live maybe 10 miles or so. Um, it, it's about in a, in a modern car, it's about a 10 minute drive in a model T it's about a 30 minute drive. So it's not a bad commute. Yeah. Um, weather depending. Of course, of, of course. course. I don't know how you'd go in the snow with the model T. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be good. I, look, I, I, it'd be great to turn up to a flying field with the model T and you're playing in the back and oh, 
couldn't be here. Right? But it's, and maybe that's part of my fascination with the free flight models yeah. is because it, it's true to that era. That's I true. Don't know. Exactly true. Now, you are heading up the, um, you know, the executive director at the AMA. So you're really, you know, the boss there in the office. Um, you've been, what, at the AMA for around 10 years now? That's correct. Yeah, how did you first about eleven years? Yeah, yeah. So, how did you how did you enter into the AMA and and what roles have you held along the way? Sure. So, my my background um, was primarily in communications with with some policy background, um, and and that's where I got my degrees in uh, undergraduate and masters. And when I came to the AMA, I I helped lead up their communication efforts and launched some of their digital properties. And then I had an opportunity to go into their policy, government relations division. And I led that up for a few years, spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., working with our federal agencies and Congress. Uh, and, and that eventually led me up to this position about three years ago. So uh, it, it, it's a unique opportunity to be in this seat here as executive director and uh, have those different roles in my back pocket. You know, working with staff, knowing some of the nuances, knowing uh, the the different challenges and opportunities within the association. Uh, so I've been here for at least in this role for three years, and I hope to be here. Honestly, I hope to make a, a lifelong career in this position. It's a, it's a great hobby and it's a great organization. Yeah, and it's it's look. I, I was saying to you off air how I really think that the rest of the world look up to the AMA for guidance, and and we'll talk a bit about drone regulations, some of the stuff we're doing later, but. How big is the AMA? Like, how big is the network of the AMA with the members and clubs? Right. So we have 2,400 flying sites and clubs across the country. And uh, the club size, I'm sure, like in Australia, they, they range. Uh, we have some that are just a handful to some that are hundreds in, in size. As a whole, uh, we're about 160, 170,000 members strong. Um, and you know, we've had some some really good years. Interestingly, um, you know, COVID has been a challenge and it's it's I'm so uh, grateful that we're finally seeing light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but the one thing about COVID is it, it as people were sitting at home, a lot of people started getting bored and, and they started looking for new hobbies. And model aviation is a great outlet that you can enjoy outside. You could do it while socially distanced. Uh, we had a lot of people come to us saying, you know, what? I'm dusting off my old model. I haven't flown in 20 years or, hey, my neighbor flies model planes. I'm kind of bored. Can you, I'd like to get into this hobby. So it's we've had a couple really good years um, as new people are looking for new hobbies. And I'm glad they're looking to model aviation. Yeah, well, it, we, we had a similar situation here in, in the hobby. We had, especially where I live, we had a couple of lockdowns and, and you know, uh, the first one, well, I think it was maybe four weeks or so. And then the second one went for close to three months. And everybody just went into the shed and started fixing models, building models. The hobby shops were selling out. They couldn't get stock. Yes. They're still busy now. You know, they're still trying to play catch up. And But it happened across multiple industries. And it's it's one of those things that the psychology behind all of that just fascinates me how you can't buy a bike. Bikes, bike sales have gone through the roof. Right. Uh, and because of the whole supply chain issues that's happened around the world as a result of COVID, car supplies here in Australia, uh, it's hard to buy cars. And so it, even though a lot of people were losing money because they weren't working, 
there were other people that were making up for it by spending on all sorts of things. You know, mo- motorbike sales went through the roof and we couldn't even ride them because we were locked down. <laughs> I bought a motorbike. I bought a motorbike and I couldn't ride. Why did I buy a motorbike? That's another story. But anyway, but it was, it's was it been an interesting scenario and I think it's, it's it, we've been working in parallel and I, I was reading um, our local association here is called the NAAA and they fundamentally do similar things to the AMA, but at a totally different scale, at a much smaller scale. But uh, I was looking at their report and their um, annual report for the, for the last financial year, they actually did really, really well. Their, their costs were reduced because they couldn't, they didn't, they weren't events that they were sponsoring and things like that. So, uh, and the numbers held their own and even my own flying club, the numbers are booming. Like it, it's yes. been something like 11 new members already in the first few months of this year and and yes. more coming and and even some younger younger kids and whose dad used to fly is now coming back to the hobby and dragging their son with him so there is a, there are upsides to every downside really and okay we all hope that the covid situation can get over i think the the most disappointing thing for us is the lack of events uh agree yeah we normally have 2000 plus sanction events and clubs i'm we estimate around 9000 events across the country uh, you know, fun flies and, you know, let's grill some hot dogs. Uh, but right now we we have maybe 500. We have about a fourth of what we normally would have in terms of sanctioned events because, like you, we're on various stages of lockdown. And, and it's hard to really have an event in social distance. And there are ways you can do it, but uh, it, it's definitely challenging. Yeah, and I think uh, from my perspective <laughs> – I remember what going to events was like and how fun it was. I don't want to turn up and now have to stay 10 meters away from another group of people or something like that. Cause right. there's no, I'll, I'll rather wait, but in Australia, we're in a very, very good position. Like we, we have got very low numbers uh, of, of cases that there's probably no more than 20, 25 people in the country that have COVID. So we're starting to Great. see things come back. So we're pretty fortunate. Now, as I've mentioned, the numbers, uh, you know, the difference between the, the the hobby in the US mark and say in Australia is massive. We're a, we've got 25 million people in our population. We have about oh between nine nine and a half thousand members in our local association. How many staff do you need to support your your member base and your club base? You know, it's I think it's the volunteers that's really staggering because uh, we really rely on our volunteers. But in terms of staff to manage. The thousand acre property to manage the museum, to manage a foundation, to manage member fulfillment and services. We're about 40, 45 member or staff um, people strong. That's how many staff members we have here, part time and full time. And then, of course, an army of volunteers, uh, associate vice presidents, leader members, club officers. I mean, you think about we have five club officers on average for each club. And if that's 2000 clubs, we have 10,000 club officers who are volunteering their time. Uh, that's where a lot of the work is done at the grassroots level. So it's a, it's a great synergy between our volunteers and our great staff here at eight headquarters. Yeah. And it's uh, here in Australia, we have the central body called the MAAA. Then each state mm-hmm. has its own sort of chapter that manages what's happening locally. And so the MAAA is actually quite a small organization from a headcount. There's one full-time employee and poor Tyson is running around like a headless <laughs> chook most of the time. But then there are other people, you know, to, to support clubs at a, at a local level. How does the structure work with the AMA when it comes to the different states and the different regions around, uh, around the U.S.? 
So very, very much the same, although we clustered some of our states together. We're, we're broken, in, broken into districts and we look to um, our board members. We have one board member who's elected in to represent each district and we have 11 different districts. So a district may have anywhere from three to six states assigned to it. Uh, and, and, and likewise, we have national headquarters and the board of directors who collectively develop policy and programming and mission. Uh, but we look to our various districts um, to, to to really serve our members more at the at the grassroots level. Uh, and some just although honestly, if you cross the line from one district to the other and you go to a different club, it's it's not going to be radically different. They're all, we're all here just having fun, flying model airplanes, competing. Um, you're not going to see a lot of differences between the districts, but we still think it's good just to have those districts broken out because members in, in the south part of the country, such as Texas, their flying season's radically different than those up north in Michigan and, and how they conduct events may vary. Uh, so it's a great structure. We like it. Um, but I'll be honest, we, we really all see ourselves as one AMA. We really don't necessarily... I don't, I don't want to say we don't look at the districts as a mini AMA. Uh, you know, if I were to talk to someone from District 5, for example, they, they, they know they're in District 5, but they really know they're an AMA member. That's who they are. I'm an AMA member. I think that works really, really well, that that, that structure. And like you said, in the U.S. is a diverse sort of place, you know, geographically. And, and having that representation of different districts and that input probably makes uh, a lot of sense. It probably feel, makes the club members feel as if their voice – They've got a voice at the, to the upper AMA echelon. It, and that's exactly what it is. The, the, the board of directors, or we call them the executive council, they're, they're assigned to each district to represent their members from their, from their states. And uh, I agree. It gives them a chance to shape AMA vision. And we're having some really exciting conversations with the board about, you know, what's our next step in STEM curriculum? What's our next step? How do we continue to grow the hobby? Um, and, and I got to give credit to our board of directors there and, and executive council. They're really good about getting to the flying field and talking to our members and being a conduit. Yeah, no, that, that works really, really well. Now let's just talk a bit about, you know, associations, uh, are often misunderstood. I think I've worked with a lot of different associations through my professional career and then through hobbies and things like that. And, a lot of members look at associations and say, well, what do they actually do? Uh, you know, I pay this money and what what are they actually doing with it? What do you see as the main sort of agenda that you've got with the AMA and, and the value proposition that you give the members? You know, I think it's the easy answers to, to point to the magazine and to insurance. And those are extremely valuable benefits. Uh, if you were to go shop for that insurance policy on your own, you, you your membership dues wouldn't even come close to making a dent into that. But I think the real value of the association, besides all those benefits, and we have travel benefits, we have we negotiate prices even for T-shirts for events, all those good benefits. But it's it's the strength in numbers, and it's that power of a voice. And and we saw that most recently with uh, facing some from very owners some very challenging regulations, where we as a community were able to rally together under one voice and shape federal policy and to be able to have staff to help 
work directly on behalf of our members and to lean on our members to feed off each other. And, and there's a moment, quite a few moments, just within my 10 years here where uh, our staff rallied, our members rallied together and, and wrote Congress or wrote the FAA, which is our federal agency, our CAA. Um, and, and I think that's the real power is strength in numbers with an association. I, I, I 100% agree. And I think that it's hard to put a dollar value on that. But right. I mean, what, what does AMA membership cost, though, as an example? It's it's seventy five US dollars. Okay, so it, it it works out about the same in Australia once we convert it, uh, uh, and and we get the similar kind of things. Now, in the whole scheme of things, there's not a lot of money in our yearly expenditure that most of us have. But being able to have that voice when you need it, I think it's in those times where things are just going well and there's no real issues. People start to question, "What am I doing?" And then suddenly ha- something happens, like a, a new regulation around drone usage that. Right. You need to have that voice. And who's the government going to listen to? The people who are coordinated together in some sort of kind of way. It makes a lot of sense. So I see my investment, well, I see it as an investment when I join my association in something that I may need their voice and the voice of others to help me at some point in time in the future of my hobby. So I think it makes, um, you know, I, I don't have an issue in, in paying that that kind of money. Yeah, and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work that you know you you it's hard to articulate. So, for example, where and I'm sure we'll talk about things such as remote ID and and some regulations, but behind the scenes, we're working with a lot of the big manufacturers and even small engineers throughout the country to ensure that you know as new products are rolled out, that they work for our community and that and that they're practical and you know we really do advocate on behalf of our members, not just in D.C. but at uh, through product and with other stakeholders. Uh, I just had a, a call earlier today where uh, I was meeting with around a, a group of stakeholders that represent drone use in academia, uh, full-scale aviation, and, and we're constantly communicating to ensure some of the things they're doing doesn't works harmoniously with what we're doing. And, and it's a lot of those behind-the-scenes things that people just don't see. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to articulate to say, well, if there wasn't an AMA or, or an MAA, these things could have happened. But they, you know, it, it could have been a, it could be a much different picture if it wasn't for MAA working behind the scenes or AMA working behind the scenes. I think sometimes members can uh, look at things very simplistically and they say, "Oh, well, we just need to do that." But when you scrape the surface, to do that involves a lot of work and somebody actually doing it. And I was a committee member of an association, and people would always come up to me and say, "Oh, we should do this." And I'd say, "Okay." Who's going to do it? When are we going to do it? And how much is it going to cost? And they wouldn't like me questioning that because, but that was the reality that, so you're asking me to do more and I'm already full. And what am I doing this for? Why am I doing it? When's it going to happen? How do I, how do I realize that? And they, they often would walk away and then never broach the topic again. But okay, let's get into this remote ID situation because I suppose it's one of the biggest things that's come onto everybody's radar. And again, We've been looking to you, Chad, for the guidance because right. Australia is one of those countries where we sit back and we we watch and we learn from other countries and other countries' experience. You know, if we take COVID, for example, we're just starting to roll out a vaccine. We observed what was happening. We didn't have the sense of urgency like other countries, but we would sit back and watch. With our own uh, flying regulations, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority here, CASA, they are... 
sat on the fence in relate in regards to drone regulations for quite some time, but now you can see them heading the way that the U.S. market's gone. Tell us a bit about what's happening in that space, some of the challenges, and, and what you've been working on. Well, and I don't think Australia's unique in that. Uh, you know, I talked to some of my other counterparts in other parts of the of the globe, and uh, I even think back to the first time Rich Hansen, who who's our president. And who's been to many of your flying fields? Um, he and I served on an aviation rulemaking committee on remote ID, and this was back in 2016. Uh, that's how long these conversations have been going on. And the kickoff meeting from our CAA at DFA was that um, the world's watching, and uh, the, the decisions we make will likely be adopted globally. So that's a lot of pressure, mm. but we recognize that you know a lot of countries are kind of in a holding pattern. What's the U.S. going to do? And um, I, remote ID was all over the place. Uh, during that rulemaking committee, we actually took those federal agencies and those participants to some of our flying fields. And we showed them, this is what the hobbyist community is like. Here's, here's our commitment to safety. Here's what a safe flying environment's like. Uh, we, we were very aggressive in, in trying to clarify our role in the grand scheme of things. Um, and we had AMA on one side and, and we rallied up about half of the committee to agree with us. And then we had probably the other side of the rulemaking committee on the other side. And, and the, the divide was AMA saying toys and hobbyists really don't have a place in remote ID. We get it for the commercial space. We get it for those who are flying beyond visual line of sight autonomously. Um, and then we had the other side saying we want everything and anything under the sun with squawking a remote ID beacon. And the FA took that advice and they tried to form a compromise. And the, like most compromises, it never works out. It's you make both parties upset. And, and their first draft had some good elements, but a lot of negative issues. So that that's where we rallied the troops. We got our members engaged. They, they expressed their opposition. And uh, we have remote ID, which it is today, which essentially is three things. Um, option one is if you're at a flying field, you don't have to do a thing. If you're at an AMA flying field, you don't have to buy a special widget. You don't have to connect to the internet. You don't have to, you just take your model and fly. Um, no special equipage. Option two is if you're flying in your backyard or maybe out in the back 40, uh, there's a, a little widget you could put on your model aircraft. Um, Mockups are about the size of a postage stamp or maybe your, your thumbnail. Um, it doesn't require you to connect to the internet. It just squawks. And that way, if if there's an aircraft passing by, they can pick up that squawking signal and know to, to stay away. Um, the, and then the third option is primarily for commercial. If you're going to do drone package delivery, you're going to fly miles out of sight, then you do have to comply with what they call standard remote ID, which gets a little bit more into network and connectivity and, and squawking your ground control station in the model air or the drone most likely. Um, but for our community, if you're at a flying site, you do nothing. If you're flying in your backyard, Either let's make it a flying site, or you may have to, you have to get that little that little widget. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you just went through that because I think that we 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 saw all the the angst and the lobbying going on, and it was filtering down to, down to to Australia and the rest of the world, and we were all supporting from afar. I can tell you that everybody was in there going, "Okay, the AMA is fighting for everybody in, in the world, really, at this point in time." And my gut feel is that 
because our flying clubs are regulated well and have, have, have a long history of being regulated, that the government's always like that. They like the policies and procedures that are around the operation of our flying clubs and the management of our airspaces and that kind of thing. And and the reality is that most of us can't fly our planes very far away because we can't see them. And so we're not going to be right. miles, miles away. So it's good to see that there's some some sense coming into it. And uh, you know, the, I still think there's a lot of challenges even from that commercial end as to how they're going to do these drone deliveries here in Australia. There are so many regulations in place that really prevent a drone delivery happening. Can't fly over people, right. can't fly in public areas, you know, over buildings is going to be a challenge and all that kind of thing. So there's, it's amazing, though, the amount of development that's happening around the world. And I know many people that are in the industry, even in Australia and in China, that are, are working on this drone delivery stuff. Have the, have these laws been passed or are they still in draft stage or being voted on? Where are we actually at today? So, good point. Uh, we are very close to the implementation phase. Uh, so, you know, I mentioned this is been a process about five years we're in the process and we probably have maybe not quite another five years but we're maybe two-thirds of the way through so very soon the fa is going to enter what they call implementation and that is actively working with the manufacturers to define what these broadcast modules look like actively working with ama so we can ensure we capture all of our flying sites uh, and, and create a method so we can add new flying sites as new clubs are formed so that process takes anywhere from 18 months to three plus years is the timeline the FAA has, has lined out. Um, and that's an aggressive timeline. It may spill into four or five years. And, and that's the work I mentioned earlier that we're doing. We're already working ahead of that meeting with manufacturers. So if there are, there's a member who wants to buy this little $20 widget to put on their plane because they don't want to fly to flying field, you know, let's make sure it, it's compatible across all platforms and it, it really does work for our member. Yeah, that's, that's, I was just thinking that you should sell international memberships just as an associate member, just to support the work that you're <laughs> doing. Because it, 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 the thing that surprises me is that you've probably got the scale that allows you to, to do this, where a lot of countries don't, that their associations are too small. You know, our, our, our guys locally do a very good job liaising with, with the government and, and the regulators and we've had many wins and so the relationship is going well what do you think that relationship really needs to look like because i think there's some people that are flying field says we should just go in there and tell them that we're not doing this and bad luck <laughs> now I, right. I i dare say that's probably not the best approach to take you know and i get the frustration um because on the surface it doesn't make a lot of sense uh but the the national airspace is is evolving and and like you I'm I'm not sure where drone package delivery is going to go but I I do see a use for for drones doing surveying work or inspecting telephone wires or utility lines um, mapping I, I could you know inspections for insurance companies I I could see a, a commercial use case for drones and um, there's a lot more low altitude operations out there. So I could see the airspace getting a little more congested and, and we do need to talk to each other. If there's an autonomous drone flying blind across the airways, they, they should know where a model flying field is so they can avoid it. Or if someone's flying in the backyard, they should avoid it. And so I, I get that. The other issue is there's national security concerns too. Um, and our national security and, and Homeland Defense 
Department of Defense, they're, they're, they really want to get a better feel for friend from foe, you know, who just like a car here in the States, you have to have a license plate just like in Australia. And, and uh, you know, if your license plate's outdated or you don't have a license plate, that, that could lead to, to some concerns. Um, so the Department of Defense does want they're, they're playing a role in this, too. They, they want they want to at least have a better feel for who's out there in the national airspace. Um, and and I get maybe that that doesn't solve all of our members concerns because there's still members who are saying, you know, what? I've been flying for 40 years. And I've never been an issue. And I agree. They're not an issue. Um, so I, and that that's been our message, which is why we, we feel good with the victory of, you know what? You're right. You can still go to your flying field and you don't have to you don't have to jump through any hoops. Fly as you always have. Um, but it's, it, anytime you have government overreach or government regulations, it's, it's never fun. No one wants it. No. And it's one of those situations where it, it isn't our fault. We've been thrust into, into this discussion as a sheer result of the technology that's developed and the, and, and like you said, the commercial applications that have come about. And it's just another thing that we need to deal with. The challenge that, oh, you know, I want to get the, the, your opinion on this in the U S market, but here in Australia, one of the challenges that we've got is the government and the regulators can bring in many different new regulations to to control or monitor our activities, but that increases their resources that are needed to actually implement those, monitor them, and that kind of stuff. And and here in Australia, the, the CASA has been very open in saying we don't have the money to be able to monitor things, so we want to charge you, the drone user, to register your drone twenty dollars a year to build up the funds so that they can actually finance things. Is that a similar situation in the US that we, we could be creating regulations that we just actually can't manage in the future? So it's interesting. Those conversations have happened. And, and of course, we push back very aggressively. So we're not hearing those conversations as much anymore. Uh, you do have to register, and that's a $5 fee, US dollars, but that's every three years. So so it's a, a buck sixty a year if you average it out. So it's it's a nominal fee. Um, but I think I think you're right. I think it's that I think it's naive to assume that conversation's dead, all because it's not coming up. I think it will come up um, again and um, but it's not a lot of chatter right now around it. Typically here in the US, there is a there's general consensus across um, Multiple industries, telecommunications, for example. Um, you know, I think of ham radio operators. If if you you, you know you're maybe you you broadcast on a frequency for ham radios, they, they don't put the same owners on a hobbyist as they do for a commercial applicator. Or if you're transporting goods in your vehicle, there are much more restrictions. Your license is you have many more fees and training. But if you're just a hobbyist or you're just driving recreationally whole different ball game. So there is a little bit of an undertone that the hobbyist and recreational side should not bear the financial burdens or much of the regulations. So I, I, I see that trickling into the unmanned aircraft hobby. I say that realizing we're facing remote ID and registration mm -hmm. and testing. So it's, it, it is a little onerous, but I, the tone here in the States generally is don't put the burden on the hobbyist. Yeah. I think, look, we're going to have to do something and hopefully that's not onerous on the hobbyist. But if, if any hobbyist is out there thinking that this is not going to impact us in any way, then I think they're probably fooling themselves that the reality right. is, is something's got to happen. And, and, you know, there's 
you know, even in full full scale aviation, there's still challenges. You know, um, a good friend of mine was involved in an incident where he lost his life that probably could have been prevented through better airspace management. They're still investigating situations, but it's it's the same. You know, now if we've got more users in the sky with with autonomous vehicles and things like that, well, okay, if it's five bucks every three years, are we really going to complain? It's not going to be an issue, and and I I didn't know anything about that little postage stamp size little squawking device right. that that because that was one of the concerns we were reading about. We're going to have to have these boxes in our planes now, that, and an internet connection at the field, and we're going to have to be communicating with the web, and they're going to know exactly what we did. I'm like, well, where am I going to put it in my plane? Exactly, and that was our fear. Um, do we have to have these big, massive boxes, and that affects competition and it, it, it CG? It, it just doesn't make sense. And the power plant—you have to have a separate power plant for it. Um, DFA has already done some research, and we're working with manufacturers, and, and it does look like it will be a very affordable, uh, small-sized, what they're calling a broadcast module. Mm. Um, and I don't think we'll see that. I think their timeline is two years. Don't hold me to that. Maybe two years before we start seeing that roll out. But we may see them rolling out sooner than that. Um, and and we're going to continue working with our manufacturers to ensure that we don't go outside of scope of that. Yeah. Well, Chad, I'll tell you what. We're relying on you, all right? Putting pressure on you. The rest of the world's putting pressure on you. Because Understood. I'll tell you what, if anybody in Australia rang up one of the manufacturers with the quantity that we purchased, they wouldn't even listen to us. So we're banking on you, Chad. But I'll tell you what, it sounds like you've got it under control. I honestly mean that. That uh, It was very refreshing to hear where you're up to and, and what you're doing behind the scenes. So please, from all of us, thank you for the effort that you're making in relation to that. And I think you know we've got a reasonable sort of outcome on the table there. So good job. No. And again, it goes back to staff and and our members. I cannot thank our members enough. Uh, When we asked them to stand up and speak and we said, you know, here's some talking points. They 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 stood up and they made a difference. Yeah, well, uh, we were seeing it and I was seeing the emails and companies like Chris Hinson at Extreme Flight. They put messages out about it and. Uh, I I did it as well through my own social media channels from a flat out RC perspective. Said, "Hey, Excellent. this is what's going on. Like support, support, support our brothers and sisters over there in the US. They're fighting for us." So it was good to see. Now, let's park the drone thing. And uh, okay. the other thing that I want to sort of talk about is one of the challenges that the world has faced as far as our hobby and and that is participation. And what we've noticed here in Australia is any club, whether it be the local golf club or the um, you know, we have the cricket club and the football club and all that kind of stuff down here. They're all struggling to get some new participation in. It's almost like we're all competing against each other and the main competitor being the damn computer and trying to get people away from it. <laughs> the AMA is doing, you know, a really, you're making a, a very strong effort to try to increase participation. Where are you at in far, as far as is the hobby growing, isn't it growing, and what activity are you putting in place to try to, to keep, new people coming in bolstering up the the numbers you know so it, it's it's a multi-pronged approach i don't think there's one silver bullet if we just did this things will turn around because you're right it's it's we're competing not just against computer screens or games but people getting into boats or landscaping or other hobbies there's a lot of recreational outlets out there fishing and so how, how do we lure people into this hobby and so 
we're pumping a lot of energy into our local clubs. We recognize that our clubs are our biggest advocates. They're in front of people and potential members the most. So that's where a lot of our board conversations tonight is going to go towards, you know, how can we continue empowering our clubs to help spread the, the joy of model aviation? Uh, and another approach we're working on is education. Our education department has been doing some amazing work getting models into the hands of kids in the classroom. Um, you know, I think of some notable members, like I have a photo up here of Neil Armstrong, uh, who landed on the moon. And he, he was a lifetime AMA member. He competed. He flew control line. And we, we talked to his family just a couple years ago and, and did a great feature story on him and, and his family. And he even wrote a testimony to AMA where he said, it's because of model aviation, because someone put a model in my hand when I was a kid that I knew right away, this is my hobby and I, I'm going to invest my life into aviation. So our education department's working very aggressively in providing teachers with the tools they need to learn how to safely use model aviation for STEM curriculum, science, engineering, technology, or science, technology, engineering, and math. And we call it STEAM. We add A for art because mm. there's a little bit of an art to That's model true. aviation. That's true. So those two, and there are other elements as well, but th those are the two foremost efforts that we're doing at the moment. Yeah. So that, that, so that STEM program is quite interesting. Um, just give us a high level understanding of what that looks like. Sure. So we have, we just rolled out a new model. Uh, we call it the beta. Um, and it's, it's a model you can easily put together. Cause one thing in the classroom is you don't want to hand a kid glue an exacto knife, you know, like, no, like the days no, before. Right? No way. <laughs> Schools <laughs> frown upon that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so instead of handing kids knives, we, we hand them a model that's very plug and play. You, there's still elements you could trim. There's still elements and you could just trim by just moving some, some of the airfoils. Uh, and, and there's a winder. It's, it's a free flight model. This model is unique because you can add servos and other, other elements depending on how sophisticated the teacher wants to make the class. But you can learn all the fundamentals of aerodynamics with this model, and it's affordable. It's a few bucks, uh, and, and we built curriculum around that. So what our education department does is we, we shop it around, and we encourage clubs to adopt it, and we encourage schools to incorporate it in their curriculum. And, and that's been a great Baking it as turnkey as possible. Yeah. Teachers have a very tough job. So to hand them a turnkey solution is is, is big in, in getting it into the hands of kids. I, I, I'm a big advocate for those kind of programs. I've got firsthand experience with, um, you know, I've been to China a number of times to flying events and, and, and met a number of people there. And one of my good friends over there, actually, he used to manufacture model planes, but he stopped because his wife was going to schools and running sort of an aviation program as part of say the science course and he it was more lucrative for him to go and do that as well and as an example what they would do is they would go into different schools you know an hour a week and they would run this aviation sort of program and they would build a rubber band powered plane and then what would happen is those the kids would build them and then they'd go and compete with their rubber band power planes against other regions. Yes. And I was in Guangzhou. He was, was flying back to Australia that day and he said, I've got to go now. I said, where are you going? He said, well, my students are competing. And I said, how many students are competing at the event? He said, oh, it's only a small event. There's a thousand kids there. 
And wow. the next thing was, I said to them, well, is the hobby growing in, in China? I said, yes. And all the manufacturers started to tell me how the Chinese domestic market is their biggest growth market for model airplanes. Wow. And it, it's a different culture there. And a lot of them are looking for something to do and they're, they're, they're making more money than they've ever made and, and they're spending money on model planes. And it's almost like we don't need to worry about the rest of the world almost now because we've got enough in our own backyard. <laughs> but it all stemmed from, I always say every action has a reaction and there's this action that's happening which will drive that growth. When it, I, I love STEM programs because we, we alluded to the, the, the commercial rise of unmanned aircraft um, in the commercial space. And when you think about it, where is the expertise going to come from? And a lot, yes. a lot of that expertise, you're not going to be able to go to do a university course on aero modeling. The AMA might start a university, but uh, but it's going to come from the the hobbyists. Are you seeing that flow on effect? Um, you know, are you getting companies approaching you about working with you to try to increase the pool of talent to get into that space? You know, it's funny you bring that up. Yes, exactly. Um, we do have people who are building platforms for, you know, I think of a, a railway where they are using drones to, to survey the railroad tracks, um, you know, to, to look for anomalies and, and to, for data collection. And we have members on the cutting edge of that. We have members who are leading efforts with Google and other major companies, um, and they reach out to us. And... Uh, and we just launched a, an affinity program. It's a mem another member benefit where we are trying to actively connect our members to careers. Um, and, and the timing was good with COVID as unfortunately people lost their jobs. And we thought, you know, this would be a great service to our members to say there are people who want your skill sets and let's try to connect you to, to those industries. Um, but so you're right. We've, we've had manufacturers, uh, and um, those getting into the drone space run ads in our magazine, job wanted at, or you know, recruiting ads. Uh, and I think you're exactly right. I, there's one testimony of a company where they said that, um, you know, if it's between two candidates and one's an AMA member, they'll go with the AMA member because they know that, you know, if, if that drone loses GPS lock or there's a challenge or the autonomous features don't, don't work. They know that, that, that individual can actually fly the model. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I recently had a, a, a guy on the podcast who, you know, there was, there was a bunch of aero modelers here in Australia that were working with Boeing that were developing a totally unmanned jet that would totally autonomous and not only a single jet, they could fly in formation together. So working towards this just unmanned fighter jets, uh, you know, yep. and so they Boeing went and bought a bunch of turbine models, expensive models, but and who better to build them than people that had built them before? Right. And then so they had to build them and test them. They had to be there for the testing days. They had to work with the engineers as far as where to place the whatever their technology into the airframes and CGs. And it really and there's like three or four of them or something that were involved in that process. And again, I've got other other friends that work, you know, for a company doing some stuff with the defense force and they have to, it might be a, a fold out flying wing that a soldier can just deploy and capture some video footage. Yeah. Somebody has to test fly it. Somebody has to know how to build it. Right. And so the aero models are getting the job because, well, they know how to build. So off they go. You know, 
that was our one of our biggest arguments in DC is you do not want to regulate the hobbies out of exi- the hobbyists out of existence because you won't have your innovators for the next generation. You won't have those to actually launch and implement the programs that you're trying to create airspace for. The hobbyists really are the cradle of innovation. And we have so many stories with, you know, the space shuttle program to, you know, even more contemporary uh, aviation feats in, in California where they're launching some of the world's largest record-breaking airplanes. And it's because of and, – and the lead engineers were hobbyists, uh, and they're still tried-and-true AMA members. Yeah. We need hobbyists. That's true. That's true. Well, we know here in Australia that our, our local defense forces do a lot with the drone community because they see those those pathways into into what they're working on. So you know, it's, it's improving year on year, I think, that connection from, from our perspective over here. Now, moving on from all of that, get, let's get back to some of the AMA, you know, the fun side of things. And I, I was, sure. I was on the. Do you know what actually happened? And I think by the time this this podcast airs, it could have changed. I went onto the AMA Facebook page, and here in Australia, we've been having a battle with Facebook because our government is trying to get the social media platforms to pay for the news that they run, you know, from from the news outlets. And so uh, Mark Zuckerberg said, okay, we don't want to pay anyone. So he cut it out. <laughs> and the AMA Facebook page was basically wiped out. Not wiped. Oh, I was unaware no, of no, that. No, no, we could. I can't. Like, if I go into the AMA web, uh, Facebook page now, it says, sorry, there's nothing to show. It's there, but there's nothing to show. Good news is it's coming back. Uh, everything's been smoothed over. So I haven't been able to look at the AMA Facebook page for a week or so now. But I went onto the website and I saw the museum. And I... Oh, there's something that I love about the history of the hobby. And I've I love I've got some magazines from the 60s, mid-60s, and I love reading them because it's like a totally yes. different era. And I love hearing about, you know, those first days of radio control flight. I don't know how they did it. And um, and so I, and I love talking to people that were there in that era. Tell me, tell us a bit about the AMA Museum. And you know, that's another I would I would love just to give you a tour just of the museum or even my office. I have posters from some of those early magazines and, and I, I built an A-frame pusher just because I agree. I, the history of model aviation is fascinating to me as well. Um, we have thousands, uh, 11,000 artifacts over at our museum. And that's part of that you know, benefit of being part of this association is you have someone here in the country who's preserving those stories and telling those stories and, and archiving all that great content and preserving it. Um, I would encourage your, your listeners to go to modelaircraft.org and there's a museum tab. And when you click on it, you can actually do a virtual tour. You yes. can walk through the museum and you can blow the screen up to fill up your computer screen. And you could, and the neat thing is that you may not realize this as you're walking through the museum and you see a model perhaps hanging from the rafters and click on it and you could, some of them allow you to do 360 views. You could read more text about those models. Uh, it's, it is one of our treasures, uh, across the street. And, um, I think that's where our headset has our mindset's been lately is how do we share all those great stories to the masses, not just here in the States, but in Australia yeah. and elsewhere. So, there are thousands of great stories over there. Yeah, that virtual tour is great. I jumped on to it last night and I was clicking around thinking, oh, this is awesome. And there's maps showing the different areas of what, what, what models you've got and different different genres and things like that, which I'm so glad someone's doing that because, you know, it's even I – was, I was searching YouTube for Byron Originals. 
I think used to run, I think it was Byron Originals, one of the one of the companies does no longer exists, but they used to run these events and they were amazing events, you know, and they had the 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 full sort of airport looking kind of fields and things like that. And it's all sort of gone by the wayside. And uh, uh, thankfully nowadays we have things like YouTube and whatever where we can document stuff and it just sits there. Yes. But, you know, the older stuff, we've just got to look after it and, and protect it. Well, you know, speaking of things like YouTube, that that's one of our projects we're, we're currently starting to to get into. And that is we have a lot of film over there and film only has a certain lifespan. And so we're in the process of developing a strategy to start digitizing all that. And there's some footage in there I don't think anyone has seen in decades. So we're kind of excited to see what's in some of these old reels. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. There'd be a lot around. But I'll tell you what, Chad, I... You've got a lot of stakeholders that are involved in the AMA, both employed staff and clubs and uh, the different districts and things like that. How hard is it to manage all the personalities that that are in the ecosystem? Because I think you report to a lot of people. <laughs> you know, I think I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, you know, I have a board meeting here here very soon. But I don't just report to the board. Uh, it's it's our members, and we have 170,000 plus members, and and really beyond that, it's it's you know we serve the hobby as a whole, not just our members, but the hobby as a whole globally. So you're right. There, there are perspectives, and and probably the biggest challenge is, we talked a little bit about this earlier. The hobby is so diverse. Yeah. Diehard free flighters, diehard control liners, turbine, aerobatic glider it, it it's the whole gamut and and sometimes that's probably the biggest challenge is trying to make sure everyone gets their fair share of the pie and that we we invest in each one of those unique disciplines um without alienating you know it's like a family you have all these kids and, and you don't want to have favorites you you really want to take care and nurture all your kids um and and that's probably been the biggest challenge is um you know making sure we are disciplined and we we serve every aspect of the hobby and help each element of the hobby grow. Yeah, it's a big challenge. Now, we're running out of time. So I always end on, I've got one signature move with this podcast, and that is the okay. final question that everybody gets asked, no matter who they are, what has been your favorite model to date? So I'm looking around my office because I, I, have, I have some with broken props. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you know, I'm going to point, maybe not to the icon. I'm going to point, interestingly, I'm going to point to the Apprentice. It's a great trainer aircraft. And here's why. Um, when we bring new staff in, that Apprentice, I, I've taken that out to the flying field and have trained new staff on that Apprentice. Um, it, it, that Apprentice actually is what got me back into the hobby 11 years ago. So it has a lot of miles on it, a lot of airtime on it. And it's pretty rough, but I'll tell you, that thing is durable. Anyone can fly it. It's a great way to get into the hobby and have a successful flight. And even if you don't have a successful flight, you'll still survive. It, the model will survive and uh, it'll capture that. So I would say, I would say that even though it's a slow poke, it's not the most exciting, but it's doggone it, it's durable it's reliable and i think maybe because it's what got me back into the hobby so maybe i'm a little biased well there's always this everybody's answer always has some connection to something that it was more than just the way the plane flew that 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 they love and, and it often it's aligned to a period of time now chad 
I really appreciate you spending the time with me today and, and with all our listeners around the world. Thank you for the effort that you're making. Keep up the good work and uh, we're rooting for you all the way from here from Australia. So thanks a lot, Chad. No, thank you for having me. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted, and a big thank you to Chad Budro, all the way from the US, from the AMA. Uh, look, what a great guy! Uh, imagine working in an office where at lunchtime you could just duck out the back and go for a fly. How good is that? Uh, and that's what the staff at AMA are capable of doing. As you can see, it's quite a big organisation compared to our local ones here in Australia and dare say in other countries around the world. And so compared to the MAAA, there's, there's a lot of staff, there's a lot of members, there's a lot more to manage. But as I said in the interview with, or well, the chat with uh, Chad was how the rest of the world really looked to, to them uh, to, to take the lead as how they're managing certain things. So big thank you to Chad. Hope you enjoyed that chat with him. Now, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you always stay up to date. Plenty more coming. I've got a whole bunch of great interviews in the bag we have a repeat guest coming on could be next week actually repeat guest for the first time but talking about some different stuff so stay tuned for that all happening don't forget instagram flat out rc instagram page don't forget to get on board with the youtube channel and also our facebook channel big thank you for joining me once again and i'll be back next week same time same bat channel